Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Inika Kodestane, and this week, Juliana Davis, Olivia Becker, and I discuss global refugee education with Christina Russell, Executive Director of the Visionary Global Education Movement, also known as GEM, at Southern New Hampshire University. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, over 70 million people were displaced worldwide, with over 25 million people living as refugees. Currently, just 3% of refugees are in higher education compared to 34% of the non-refugee population globally. GEM was created to bring university education and employment pathways to refugees and traditionally underserved learners through a blended learning model that is all the more relevant at this time when much of the world has been forced to do remote learning. We had a rich conversation about refugees, what works, and what's challenging about online learning, and what it will take to increase and improve learning opportunities for transient and vulnerable populations. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, my name is Inika Kodestane, and I'm a sophomore um, from central New Jersey. I'm especially interested in political science and journalism and how that's really playing a role in our politics today. I'm Juliana Davis. I'm a lead fellow for Next Generation Politics, and I'm currently leading a civic action project based around freedom of expression. But in terms of today, I'm especially interested in talking about how coronavirus has been impacting underserved communities, both in the United States and globally. And I'm also from um, New York City. Hi, my name is Olivia Becker. I am a junior from New York City, and I currently go to the School for Ethics and Global Leadership, um, which is in D.C., but obviously everything is digital now. I'm also the Director of Outreach and Engagement at NextGen and was a lead fellow um, in the fall. Hi, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here with you and meet all of you, hear a little bit about some of your interests and looking forward to learning more. So my name is Christina, and I'm the executive director at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Education Movement, or fondly known as GEM. So it's my understanding that, um, at least on this podcast, I'm not sure if you all were on, but you had the pleasure of having Tujiza, um, who is one of our graduates of the program and also currently works for GEM. Um, She's much more impressive in her oration and thinking skills than I am for sure, which is why we like to put her up first. Um, But happy to follow her on this um, podcast. Could you just tell us a little bit more about what you do in that position and how COVID-19 has affected your work? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll tell you, I guess, what I know about how it's affected my work so far, because I think there's probably many things that I'm still um, going to be learning about how this will be affecting my work. But um, as the leader of the project, I essentially am responsible for driving the strategy and the vision um, and making sure that we have funding for the program. Um, and also um, choosing the strategic partnerships that will best work to serve students. So there's about um, over 70 million displaced people worldwide at this point, and only 3% have access to higher education in comparison to 34% worldwide. So we're talking about a pretty big gap, a pretty big need, And so that um, partnerships piece and where and how and who we work with 
um, is actually probably a, perhaps a bit more challenging than it might be if the need wasn't so great. Um, so those are my major uh, sort of three responsibilities. Um, and then of course, um, just supporting the team that I work alongside to make sure that we're meeting all of our goals. In terms of COVID-19, I mean, I think it's really interesting to, to think about our model, both the strengths of the model. So there's so many pieces of, of how we work that really um, support virtual work or some of the requirements that we're all kind of being forced into right now are actually already core components of the model. Um, and in other ways, we've had to change things significantly. Um, so essentially we're operating in four countries in Africa and um, one country in the Middle East. And um, our country in the Middle East is Lebanon and they've been undergoing a revolution and an economic um, self-termed crisis as of October, 2019. So um, they've actually had a bit of a head start in terms of shifting the model which is a blended learning model, meaning that it's part online and part in person. So SNHU provides the online piece, which is the accredited degree. And then uh, our in-person partner provides a lot of the support that students need to be successful. Um, and that can be academic support, social support, um, it's creating a learning community together, it's building skills together, and also um, making important networking connections and building social capital uh, for jobs. Because a lot of our students are coming from backgrounds where they're extremely smart and also um, don't possess the kind of social no networks that are really important to getting jobs. So on one hand, the fact that the degree is online really loans itself to students continuing and they're continuing to push on. Um, our students have also really faced a lot of adversity. Um, and in that sense, it's kind of business as usual in terms of COVID-19 in some ways, in terms of just dealing with uncertainty and uh, and, and having to push forward through what can feel like somewhat impossible circumstances um, towards a better future and just having hope and faith in that better future. So in that way, um, the online piece and just the kind of resilience that our students come in with um, really lends itself to moving forward and we're continuing to move forward. The big change is in that uh, kind of face-to-face -face part of what our partners bring. And so we're working on taking all of that virtual and essentially with the exception of Lebanon, which had to do that much earlier in October of 2019, um, all of our sites um, basically within the span of about 10 days, um, you know, countries went on, on lockdown um, and, and it's a bit of a more severe version and consequence of lockdown than what we would understand in the United States. Um, so usually no walking or exercising outside, at least in the case of South Africa and Rwanda and Malawi is about to start that on um, Sunday. Um, and in Kenya, it's about a 15 hour curfew throughout the day and no movement in and out of particular cities. So, um, so all that happened quite suddenly and it meant we had to take all of our in-person supports that were meant to support the online learning 
to a virtual state. So that's caused a change. Um, and I'm also not traveling a lot right now, which normally I am. So that's a big change as well. I was just curious, and I'm sure our listeners will be curious as well. How are people chosen to be a part of GEMS program? Like if you could just talk a little bit more about that, like how you choose specific people, where from, because I know you mentioned that you operate in four different regions or four different countries. Um, so four countries in Africa, one in the Middle East, so South Africa, Kenya, Malawi, Rwanda, and Lebanon. Um, and essentially we work with partners for them to run an admissions process. So each partner will run an admissions process um, and then they will suggest to us the candidates and we'll do a check with the university to make sure that they've met all the university requirements. Um, but it's really our philosophy that partners know best what's happening on the ground. And so um, that application process can vary a bit, but usually involves a test, um, an interview, um, and uh, of course the, the usual college stuff, like all of your documents that you finished high school, that you have satisfactory grades, um, and that you're showing promise in the program. Um, it's been quite competitive. I think in Rwanda, our volume of highest applications um, within the last five years was about 7,000 for uh, 150 seats. And so it gives you an idea of the kind of demand. And I think that's the, that's the challenging part. There's such a need. And, um, you know, in the U.S., we, we're so lucky to have backups. Um, so we can usually um, find another school or college or um, take out loans, uh, which, which of course have their, their own troublesome trajectory. But to give you an idea, the average interest rate of a loan um, across Africa is about 22%. And so um, it's, you know, it's, that's completely unaffordable, obviously. Um, and it requires collateral that folks without money that really wouldn't even have to start with. There's really kind of no safety net in many ways to, um, or I shouldn't say safety net, but there's not really a, a infrastructure um, to access other programs if you don't have money. Um, so, you know, and again, I, I don't want to underplay the problems that we have in the U.S. with loans and the kinds of trouble that people are facing over the trajectory of their lives, the deep inequality that we see across, um, you know, racial lines, socioeconomic lines in the U.S. These are all really, really real things. Um, I think that you see some of these items on steroids a little bit in some of the places where we're working because there's just not the financial infrastructure there um, to even make that decision for a not-so-great loan, perhaps. Just a follow-up on that in terms of the equity or lack thereof that, that you mentioned, how do you address this lack of accessibility, especially to the internet in nations that are significantly less developed than our own? Yeah, it's a good question. It just um, requires a lot of creativity and a lot of patience. And I would say the, pa the students bring that patience much better than myself. Um, so I had the pleasure of living and working in Rwanda for three years, and 
I remember timing, sending some of my emails and it would take seven minutes, which doesn't really sound that long. But if you actually sit and time seven minutes for one email, it feels like eternity. Um, and so I would be, you know, in my American ways, like huffing and puffing and so annoyed and how is this even possible? And I can't get it through. And um, students would, students would, you know, do some offline work for a while, or they would draft all of their emails and then post them up for when they could actually send them, or they would draft all of them and just hit send and leave it sitting all night and waiting for them to send. So I got to learn a lot from our students on the patient's front. Um, and then we try to, of course, do what we can with technology. So using local area networks, um, uploading uh, as much content as possible onto that so that um, it's not requiring an internet connection, but the computer thinks it's connected to the internet and accessing content that way. Uh, you know, constantly trying to develop relationships with telecommunications companies there and understand what the latest products are. Um, and, and kind of just look also specifically at the infrastructure. I remember we had gotten fiber in Rwanda. And so we were very excited. It was going to go faster. It was going to cost a little bit more, but it was going to go faster. Um, and it wasn't really going faster. And then we learned that actually, um, the fiber had been run. It's sort of like the tubing for it had been done in a sort of very contortionist way that was making things take much longer. Um, so it was a combination of troubleshooting through the infrastructure itself, setting up local area networks, and then um, the student patience and, and resilience. Um, and I would also say money. So it's internet is really, really expensive and we're not really seeing it come down across the continent of Africa. It's really, really expensive in Lebanon. I think the last time I was there, it was about $65 for 10 gigs. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it requires a budgetary commitment. On a broader level of like global education online, um, how effective do you believe that certain institutions like Khan Academy, for example, are at like really getting their information and allowing like people that need it to access their materials? Yeah, I mean, I think it's such a good question. I think a lot of that might be about what's the goal. You know, for us, we're really proud to offer a degree because there's so many people offering courses or tidbits or lessons or a small certification, but not really a degree to refugee learners. And so we're super excited to be able to offer that to our students. Um, I think when it comes to Khan Academy or... Um, you know, really any kind of service, like this is a tool. This is an exciting way to get a piece of information over to students. I think it's up to the people um, and programs to string those together in a way that makes sense to the learner. Earlier you mentioned that uh, GEM uses a blended learning model that combines both in-person and remote learning. And I was wondering, um, what are sort of the hangups that you guys have run into, like blending the two of those together? I know there's New Yorkers on the call um, or on the podcast, I should say. So, you know, really this work started in, in New York City. So I worked in New York City public schools for 10 years. I was a bilingual special education teacher in the Bronx at PSMS 20 um, and subsequently started a school in East Harlem, um, 120th and Lex 
where we were really um, doing blended learning. You know, the impetus for this model really comes from that work. Um, and the idea is that in higher ed, there's not always a lot of great teaching and learning practices. So I was, when I was working on my PhD, I was doing some um, adjunct work with the City College of New York because um, that paid my tuition. So obviously I was going to do that. Um, and it was an amazing experience in the students and in the academic freedom that I had with the syllabus and a lot of other committed adjuncts and professors. Um, however, nobody ever came to see my class. Uh, nobody gave me any tips on teaching. And so luckily I had been in education for quite some time at that point and had some ideas of how I wanted to make the class really interactive and make sure the students had a deep and engaging learning experience. Um, but if I imagine that I hadn't had that training, you know, what might my classroom have, have looked like, it could, could have been a bit of a mess. So, um, you know, the blended learning model that we started at first in Rwanda and that we've expanded out now to four additional countries um, really started through, um, through trying to take some of the really good practices in K through 12 learning and bring them to a higher ed environment. So I think some of the challenges with blended learning are, um, you know, in the cultural context we were in, it was not necessarily a concept or common. Um, and then there's also the neo-colonial context that we're in, in particular in Africa. And so in what ways do we want to bring exciting and innovative pedagogical approaches? And then at the same time, um, how much of that is kind of layering on our Western ways of thinking and doing and, you know, violating other cultural practices that we need to honor in front of us. So I think that was sort of a constant tension of, um, of the blended learning model, but I think the power of the model also comes in in that it is an SNHU degree uh, from New Hampshire in the United States, and we also work with local partners um, who we very much want to have students think critically around how we're approaching things um, and and how we're how we're helping students understand that the degree and the ways of learning that they're experiencing are one way of doing things, but it's not necessarily the right way of doing things and that you can just have it as another tool of how to solve problems, not necessarily the way or the right way, for example. Yeah, I, I loved what you said about the partnering with community organizations to cultivate trust and just like wanted to pinpoint that because I think it is so easy to look at it as an American organization coming in with this holier than thou attitude and just pushing an approach or a pedagogy as you said on people and how it's not that how you guys really allow the community to define the need and allow for a lot of collaboration to make your organization successful or and your mission my question is um specifically as it pertains to like a digital platform a lot of colleges boast their alumni networks and how they're a stepping stool to you know far greater opportunities in life and so how can you leverage that in some context or make sure that your that degree that you're providing them is just one step in in their life? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think um, it's something, especially as you know, we've been operating in Rwanda since 2013, but we started in Lebanon, Kenya, uh, Malawi, and South Africa in just 2018. So it's quite new and young in terms of the, the four new countries. And the question that you're asking is a really, really good one around what's the network building and what happens next. And it also gets very challenging in the world of funding. So um, there are infinite student needs. Everybody's on a lifelong learning journey. And a, a hard question for us to sometimes answer is, you know, what is our mandate? And for how much can we actually support? Um, and how long do we support somebody? So we would really like, in the same way that we provide academic coaching, we'd really like to do that in the first years of somebody's career. Because if you look at the program now, critically, as, as I'm always doing for how can it be better, you'd see a whole bunch of academic coaching and getting through the degree and then just sending students to jobs and being like, well, you know, good luck. Um, and actually, we'd really, really like to provide that same level of coaching within the job but then we start to get pushback from funders around and, and from our own university and from ourselves in all honesty um, around what does that do to the cost per student. So there's lots of tensions between sort of the service and how long do you serve alumni for. So students are tied to the SNHU alumni community. I was really, really proud that last year um, a student of ours, Sylvain, won the Young Alumni Award across SNHU, and SNHU is the nation's largest nonprofit university now with 135,000 learners. So it's a huge accomplishment that he was able to um, receive that award. And a lot of that is through engaging with um, a lot of virtual events. Because we have so many online students, um, there is a big virtual engagement. However, what there is not right now in terms of the U.S. alumni for students living internationally is a big, you know, job support network. So that's where we do work with our partners to provide those services. Um, but I think we could, I think there's a long way to go to improve those and we need to just raise more money to be able to do that. So right now um, we do have an alumni lead with our partners and so they're organizing happy hours and events with our students and a lot of the students we've asked them to also take on the leadership themselves because if they can be as the first people um, the group that starts to form and build those networks then it obviously gives a, a more credibility. I'm really interested to hear if any of you are on with Tujiza, what you maybe learned from her or anything that has stuck with you. Um, and I would also just love if I could, you know, tap the wisdom of the group. Um, obviously, refugee learners are facing inordinate challenges in moving forward. Um, but a lot of our work is around, because that narrative is out there so much around how refugees struggle, um, everything that they don't have, we've really taken the position of trying to deeply share what people do have and the strengths that they have. Um, and so any thoughts around how to do that, how to tell those stories and narratives, um, strategic approaches around that, I would love to hear your perspective, so. Um, I think one of my greatest takeaways from Shiza was I think the way that she spoke about her experience in the program was most impactful to me because it was it was very clear that like coming from like because she was right like 
all the members of the program are refugees, like coming from her background in Rwanda to like get a glimpse of like the way the American education system functions was really impactful to her. And I thought that it was interesting in the way that like she had come like kind of as like an outsider to this new program and like excelled so much. And I think that really spoke to the efficacy of the program because I think that it's really hard to take somebody from that environment, especially one as politically charged as um, Rwanda and have them like excel so much. And I think that that was what I took away. Like, I think I just took away a lot of like respect for the program itself and for Tujiza herself. Cause I thought that that was really like incredible the way that that happened. I would say just in terms of marketing um, from a strength-based approach, you can talk about how, how much, people like that you know 18 to 19 year old demographic is actually doing in their daily life like I think that people often look at adversity but don't actually look at like people taking care of their families doing all this and making it seem like college was a logical option like if they're already so capable so I think just talking about how able these people were before they even entered the program and somehow highlighting that I also think something good to use, like Olivia said, as like marketing would be to um, talk about the importance of like having more refugee professionals like in the world in general, because I think that's, it's like, they're like an underserved people in general, but also like they, I think diversity and thought is something that you could discuss and like how it's teaching people. And like, once they enter the workforce, like diversifying the workforce is something that's so beneficial to the, like to, to the, like society as a whole. So I think that's something that could be stressed when you, talk about like the program yeah we've been we actually just kind of redid our whole theory of change juliana to exactly that point to say huh if there's um only three percent of people have access to higher education 34 percent worldwide um even if we hit this target that we have of fifty thousand refugees that's only a few percentage points and because the denominator keeps growing it'll actually probably even get to be a smaller percentage at some point. So we have actually shifted our narrative more to how do we get people like me not leaving the field per se, as much as I love my job, um, but how do you get refugees themselves leading? Because right now, especially in the humanitarian sphere, all of the UN jobs, all of the NGOs, everything, it's all not run by refugees, to your exact point. So we've tried to really do a push on let's have refugees have the credentials required to be leaders in their communities and essentially um, be the best problem solvers possible. I think a great way for uh, like the students in your program to share their stories would be like through social media. I think it's it's great to like that's a great way to get the word out because it's easy to like advertise and market, you know, you can spread it to different audiences, like even our Next Gen Politics, like Instagram page, like we get a lot of things out there. We advertise our podcasts, our articles. And I think having something like that for GEM would be like super beneficial. And I think it, it is also better if it's student run because then you get like a more personal experience. Like the students want to do it. The viewers want to see it. And I think that's a great way to sort of individualize the experience. Yeah, so I just put our Instagram in because we definitely need more followers. So it's SNHU underscore gem. I had a final question just in terms of thinking about how how great the work you're doing is and expansion. 
what do you look at when you're looking to expand to another country? What are some major red flags that would stop you from entering a, a nation or a specific community? So it's all partner-based. So we're less looking at places and more about who's a partner that we're ideologically aligned with, who's serving the community well, who's been doing this work for a long time, who knows what they're doing. Um, so I think for that reason, you do find us in places that a lot of others aren't per se. Like I think Lebanon has been um, a really tough place for people to get things up and going right now or to continue them running right now. Uh, so you know, I think if you looked at a usual country metric, it wouldn't tick a lot of boxes, but because we've got some incredible organizations, including one called MAPS, M-A-P-S, Multi-Aid Programs and Services, which is a totally um, grassroots run by Syrian refugees for Syrian refugees in um, the Baqa Valley in Lebanon, where Syrian refugees are not supposed to be able to be paid, set up, or run organizations, and they're doing all of that. So their very existence um, just proves what an amazing group of people, talented people, are coming together. Um, you know, when we see a group like that, we're like, okay, hey, everybody's saying Lebanon is impossible, but this partner is amazing, and they're getting these things done against all of these odds against them. So let's go there. It's, it's very much partner-based, and we do have a whole bunch of numeric criteria, like, you know, what's the job market look like? What's the GDP? What's, what's all these, you know, kind of like World Bank type indicators or, you know, the, the usual corporate type indicators? But I think the real, the real test is when we come together and meet face-to-face and understand how aligned we are and what are our goals and do we want to do this together and you know, our partner in South Africa here, actually, um, the first time I went there, we were walking there and I was walking behind three Somali women and I didn't know, but they were clients of the Scalabrini Center of Cape Town where we work. And so we're just walking behind them. And um, when they got to the door, the confidence of with which they opened the door and walked in the building and were talking and laughing and had their arms around each other, it was like they were walking into their home. And I knew from that moment how those women walked through the door, like no, nobody stopping them, nobody asking them for ID, nobody saying like, do you belong here? You know, what's, what's your purpose here? Um, that was almost enough right there, much more than all the numeric indicators that, okay, this is the type of organization we want to be working with.